chapter 2. Yeah, if you uh, are not familiar with that song, there's whistling in that last song. And uh, just proves that northern people are truly weird. Again, whistling. When I went to college down in Florida, they uh, sang that song, Cheer Up Your Saints of God, and the, and the guy that was uh, leading the Sunday school was like, okay, now we're going to sing it in an Irish accent. What an idiot. I'm like, well, they, they do this stuff in Florida or what? <laughs> and they come up north and you're whistling in the middle of a Sunday school song. <laughs> Weird, man. <laughs> Titus chapter 2, we've been uh, teaching through the book of Titus here. And we left off on verse number 4, verse number 4. And, of course, in this chapter here, Paul is uh, instructing Titus. As you know, uh, he's instructing the old men. He's instructing the uh, the older women. And he's instructing the young women and the young men. So here we jump right into it from about a week or so ago. Excuse me. The verse 4 says that they may teach the young women... That's in reference, the older women are doing the teaching, uh, to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And the young women, uh, you wouldn't think it, uh, but there's a lot of things you wouldn't think, I reckon, but they have to learn that. And according to the Bible, that is a learning process. That's a learning process. Uh, I still hear it every now and then. You'll hear it, uh, kids today, they'll say, well, I fell in love. (laughs) Well, let me say, if you can fall in love, you can fall out. (laughs) And one feller said puppy love uh, leads to a dog's life. But love is a walk. Amen. And love is a choice. That's the important thing to remember when it comes to love. Love is a choice. And uh, uh, anything else besides two people walking together is not love. It's just uh, like a Hollywood imitation. And it takes years to learn to love your husband. And if you're a real knothead, it takes many more. It takes years to learn for the young women to learn to love their husband. And uh, now we have here in a passage here in verse 5, something very much missing uh, today in America. Uh, Verse 5, the Bible says, To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, you can go ahead and misapply this and say that a wife can't work. Uh, a, lot of people like to, a lot of people like to intimate that. They like to put that as what the passage is trying to tell you. Uh, uh, and little does the Bible-believing crowd, and that's my crowd, amen. My crowd is the Bible-believing crowd. We're all goofy kids, amen. But that's my crowd. Uh, but little does the Bible-believing crowd know this application that women are to be slaves and Cinderella's, amen, at home before the coach shows up. It's not true. It's not true at all. There's a misconception that, I don't know, if it came somewhere out of the 1940s and 1950s. It got stuck somewhere in what a lot of people call fundamental. It's just weird. It's just weird. There's a right place for a man. There's a right place for a woman. And I'm not looking to upset your theology. I'm just trying to give you the Bible here. But uh, a lot of people get they get this teaching from the new Bibles, and it's interesting. And you should note that the new Bibles change the word "keepers at home" to "workers at home." 
workers at home, which is weird. Uh, your ASV says workers, your ESV says workers, your NASB says workers, and your NIV says busy at home. That's just a smattering of uh, perverted Bible stuff there. And that's not right as far as the Bible's concerned. It says keepers as in housekeeper. Uh, my wife has kept a house for nearly 30 years, and she's worked outside the home at least every one of those years except one or two. Uh, so they keep the house up, and they don't let another woman keep it up. Amen? You keep your home. Uh, look at Acts chapter 16. I'll give you just a couple real quick uh, illustrations of this in the Bible. Uh, the fundamentalists or the, the heavy regulatory Bible-believing crowd, they'll go, well, she has to be a keeper in the home. Well, that's not what it says. And then they take that word keeper, and they just they get a little... I'll just, I'll be honest, I'll be kind, unbalanced on the thing. Now, if you look at Acts 16, 27, you know where we're at here, right? Look at verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the, uh, the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. That's Paul and Silas and so forth. 27, and the keeper of the prison... Waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. So he was the keeper of the prison. It doesn't mean that he could never leave the prison. You see it? Um, the, look at so Song of Solomon. I'll give you four of these. Uh, you might want to make a little note. Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, there's, there's a keeper of the prison. And in Song of Solomon chapter 1, uh, verse 6, you have a uh, you have keepers of the vineyard. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they could leave the vineyard. <laughs> See what I mean? Um, so you got to take uh, you you can't take your theology from one verse, and you can't take one verse and just uh, uh, go ahead and create an entire way of thinking, and take the wife that God gives you and try to hole her up in the house. You're going to go nuts. Uh, Song of Solomon 1.6. Bible says, uh, Look not upon me because I'm black, because the son had looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. So that doesn't mean that they set up living in the vineyard. They're not living in the vineyard. Uh, I'll give you another one, 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34 now, this whole thought about keepers at home, and uh, listen, if your wife has the opportunity to stay home, thank the Lord. Amen? But let me tell you what, it doesn't happen like that for the most part today. Today. Uh, you could work uh, at a grocery store or a gas station 50 years ago and provide for your family. You could, but you can't do it now. <laughs> you say, why? You don't know yet? <laughs> All right, 2 Chronicles 34, look at verse 22. 22. Bible says, And Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvith, and the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Okay, if we take a, a lot of Bible believers' mentality and fundamentalist mentality, that fellow was sleeping in the closet with the clothes. <laughs> 
You see how silly that is? Uh, just go ahead and get bounced on the thing. It just means that uh, you're going to be God's woman, then you keep your home. You'll be a housekeeper. Housekeeper. And so the King James Bible, once again, is right. It says keepers at home, not workers at home. And like I said, it's going to take, uh, no matter what you think, it's going to take two incomes to get by. And if you live in northern Michigan, it's going to take two incomes to get by. Now, the Lord gives you a special dispensation personally of grace, and, you know, you're extremely frugal, but praise the Lord. But you better watch what you say, because not everybody can do that. And you can't put that stuff on everybody. Um, and if you're in your golden years, and you see, here's the thing. Uh, we're pushing the 50 mark right now, so my wife and I are entering a whole different stage of life than the majority of what probably is here today. Uh, in your younger years, you have to carry a lot of debt. If you buy a house, you might as well say $100,000. And you have to carry that. Well, the Bible says, oh, no man, anything. <laughs> okay, well, live in a teepee. I don't care. <laughs> you know? Knock yourself out, right? Uh, but uh, in your younger years, you have to carry a lot of debt. You do. Well, I just don't believe. Okay, that don't matter. You're going to have to carry a lot of debt. And hopefully within at least 30 years of, you know, uh, maybe by the time you get 50 or 60, you can start seeing some of that stuff go away. But then you can't, you can't be in that place. You can't be someone who's getting all difficult all over the young people because it's a whole different set of circumstances. You see what I mean? And then, of course, then the golden years come, and then they take all your gold. So it doesn't matter anyway. So, But uh, in the world that I live in here in northern Michigan, two people have to work. Two people have to work. And... Uh, uh, I'll say this, everything that we have is because the Lord allowed my wife and I to go work extremely hard and sweat and toil to the tune of a minimum of 8 to at least 16 or more hours a day. And uh, uh, I'm not of this handout crowd. Uh, when I go somewhere, I don't try to look for a, a free place to stay. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Uh, matter of fact, I'm kind of shy away from that stuff. I think you ought to earn your keep. Amen? You ought to have some principles. You ought to have some scruples about you. But, uh, but let me tell you what. In the passage that we're dealing with here, let that woman work if it makes sense. Let her work. Uh, now, a woman, she can make a home without keeping it. We know that. And a woman can be busy at home, and that home can still be a wreck. But a woman that keeps a good house tends to the overall matters of true housekeeping. And uh, you can easily find that in Proverbs 31. This isn't hard to handle this morning. It's just simple stuff. You and I just have to learn to get balanced on it. Uh, you know, over there, the great verse people preach from, and it is a great verse in Revelation, I would that thou art cold or hot, right? And then, uh, then the Bible goes, here, there you go, you got to be a screaming nut for the Lord all the time. Well, maybe... Maybe you need to take in consideration the context of that. The true doctrinal context is a tribulation context. The practical application is, okay, God hates lukewarmness, but God doesn't always want you burning up and he doesn't want you freezing cold. You've you got to learn to walk. Let me tell you what, if you try to walk across these pews, it ain't going to work. You've got to walk down the aisle. You've got to be balanced on the thing. And what happens is, is if you are unbalanced one way, what you're prone to do 
is swing the pendulum too hard the other way to try to correct it. So then it takes a number of years after you see that there's a problem in your balance to get that thing and ask God and beg God to show you before you can finally swing it in the right direction. But, uh, but a woman needs to focus on her home, according to that passage there. And uh, to tell you the truth, uh, your wife's going to have to get out every once in a while or she'll go crazy. <laughs> she will. And uh, they're never told to stay indoors all the time. And they're not kept in the house. They are housekeepers. That's what the passage says. And uh, that is you don't let any, uh, anyone else uh, keep the house that God gave them. And uh, now this is a great passage here. And they're to teach them to obey and to be obedient to their husbands. And that has to be taught. And the other problem that comes around uh, back in here in Titus chapter 2 as you were dealing with the day and age where uh, you've got a bunch of knucklehead men and they're putting all these rules and regulations on their women. All these rules and regulations on their women. And, uh, and they think that a wife is like a pack mule. Uh, well, <laughs> you, uh, you treat her like a pack mule, that ain't going to work in the long run. You might, uh, you might pull the wool over her eyes and she might feel sorry for you. And then you just might wake up one day and she'll be gone. You say, well, that's not right. Well, I didn't say it was right. <laughs> but anybody knows if you, have a, if you treat some, something like a farm animal, you'll overdrive it, you'll kill it. <laughs> and if you don't treat your wife the way that you should, you'll, man, you'll blow that thing to smithereens. <clears throat> amen, amen. <laughs> and, uh, but there's a group of men, I run into them constantly, they think their wife's a pack mule or a slave. And... Uh, if uh, what you think that's a role for your wife, she won't, uh, she won't obey you very long, I'll tell you that much. But in verse 5, the Bible says that the word of God be not blasphemed. That the word of God be not blasphemed there. Titus chapter 2. And this is mentioned two other times in the Bible. And now, of course, in the one case, it was in reference uh, was the, that the Jews didn't practice what they preached. In uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 24. And... Uh, Go ahead and turn there. I know we covered this when we went through Romans, but you know, that phrase is important to remember that the word of God be not blasphemed, and it's dealing with uh, a woman that's arguing with her husband. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. So here you have just a Jew that's uh, not practicing what he preaches. And then the other time it's mentioned is in uh, 1 Timothy 6.1. We'll look at that real quick. 1 Timothy 6.1, three times this phrase is mentioned, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Romans chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, and 1 Timothy chapter 6. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, you're familiar with that. The Bible says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not Blaspheme. So that's dealing with their conduct. That's dealing with conduct of servants towards their masters. And there's only one other time that that shows up in the Bible, and that's where David had sinned with Bathsheba there. And uh, the Lord said that it, uh, that had given cause for the enemies of God to blaspheme. So these aged women, uh, back in Titus chapter 2, they're to teach the younger women to love their husband. And you got to remember, men, the Bible says that a woman is either a crown to her husband or rottenness to his bones. 
She can be a shiny crown or she can cause your bones to rot. <laughs> and uh, it's strange to me that a doctor or a lawyer or a school teacher or any other aspect of life, a banker, uh, their wife can be a devil. Their wife can be just wicked as a day as long as not a big deal. When it comes down to a preacher or a Christian, then there's a different application. Uh, that's why Paul's telling them, watch out. Because when people look at your wife, they're looking at you. Something to think about. And so, men, you've got to treat your wife right. You say, why? Why should I treat my wife right? <laughs> so she'll look good. Crown, right? You treat your wife so she'll look good. So considering what we uh, just covered there, real quickly, the Word of God is blaspheme when a man doesn't practice what he preaches. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 24. The word of God is blaspheme when a servant refuses to obey his master with the right spirit. That was 1 Timothy 6.1. And the word of God is blaspheme when a Christian woman argues and fights with her husband. That's Titus chapter 2, verse number 5. Now Paul, having told Titus how his church members should act and conduct themselves, what does he do? If you look at verse 7, he turns uh, on the pastor himself. And he admonishes him not only to teach these things, but practice them himself as a pattern or an example set for others to follow. So if he's just not interested in just letting the congregation know, then he turns on the pastor and tells him, hey, look, you need to take care of this. I remember Dr. Uckman, he said this, a sober-minded young man will have his mind on God, his mind on heaven, hell, and the Bible, Jesus Christ, the will of God for his life, controlling his flesh, learning the Bible, fleeing useful lust, finding a Christian wife, providing for his family, winning souls, and keeping in good shape to serve Jesus Christ. And he said that indirectly to that verse. Now look at verse 6. Verse number 6. He says, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Now verse 7. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. And you'll notice here that the pattern mentioned here in verse 7 consists of what? Proper doctrinal teaching. That's what that is. And verse 7 says, showing uncorruptness, uncorruptness, uh, like the corruptness that the world has for the Word of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll look at this one a couple of times in the next few minutes here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 even as far back as Paul's days, people were messing around with the Bible. And here it shows up. <clears throat> Paul is challenging Titus. But the world uh, has corruptness for the Word of God. And it says, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So Paul, what's he doing? He's challenging Titus. And he's challenging him to show himself a pattern a pattern of good works, in verse 7, in doctrine showing uncorruptness and gravity. What's gravity? Well, something that keeps you level, right? Not up, not down, not dogmatic in one area, and not, uh, you know, not caring in another. That's balanced. And sincerity, that means if you're going to preach it, mean what you say. Right? Don't just run your mouth. If you're going to preach it, you're going to teach it, you might as well mean what you say. Sincerity. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Sincerity. That's a dangerous thing to say this, and I don't mean to be so ambiguous, but I believe 
many, if not most, preachers are sincere about being a pastor. But if you needle that thing in, I know my heart, I'm a man, I know who I am. You got to say, are you really serious about everything you're preaching? You might be serious about an office. <laughs> I mean, but if you're going to preach on soul winning, are you just going to preach or are you actually going to try to do it? Right? Sincerity. He says here in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So in the sight of God. So sincerity. And Titus is to believe what he's saying. And if you believe what you're saying, Christian, you know what you'll do? You'll let your life back up what you say. That's it. You'll practice what you preach. And uh, so if a fellow gets up and preaches on soul winning, well, then he better not just be a fake motivator. I mean, I know how to motivate. I'm, I'm not just shooting my lips off. I mean, <laughs> I would go to these little schools and these uh, elementary schools. I remember went down to was Arthur Hill and did one of the biggest presentations for 6,000 kids for a fundraiser. And, and I got their attention, and I said, do you like pizza and ice cream? Why well, that place went crazy. I got them all calmed down. The teacher's like hating my guts now because I just got them calmed down. I said, well, this is what you have to do. You have to sell ice cream to four people, everybody. And I'll give you as much pizza and ice cream, and I was hoping they wouldn't take me serious or I would have went broke, you know what I mean? <laughs> But I'm telling you what, they were motivated and they all went and smashed their goals, so forth and so on. That I can motivate you with pizza and ice cream, but if you're going to preach on soul winning, you can't just be a fake motivator. You ought to practice it. So talk about being sincere. <laughs> and Titus is to believe what he's saying, and his life will back it up. <clears throat> if you preach on foreign missions, I reckon you probably ought to know something about foreign missions. Amen. Uh, or if you're preaching about boldness and taking a stand, it would be uh, probably a good thing if you're already taking a stand and you're standing where you should be. Sincerity. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And if you're not sure about it, don't say it yet until the Lord gets the thing hammered out inside of you. A lot of times we take other people's convictions because we, we think it looks good, we think it sounds good. Well, if the Lord hasn't settled it with you, ask him about it and just be quiet about it until he settles it in you. <clears throat> now look at verse 8. Here we go. Titus 2, 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say about you. All right, so right away in verse 8, Paul gets to blasting things about sound speech. He says that they should have no just cause to say evil things of you. And that's what we're talking about, just cause. Listen, if you serve the Lord, if you're going to try to live a Christian life, people are going to say stuff about you. People are going to speak evil of you. And that's, that's just it's just what it is. <laughs> you're not going to get away from it. But the thing is, they should not have a just cause. And they'll speak evil of you. Why? Because they spoke evil of Christ. Uh, they spoke evil of John the Baptist. They spoke evil of Paul. The thing that happens is a lot of times a Christian, you'll start living for the Lord. You'll get determined to do something for him, and people will say evil things about you, and you'll stop and you'll question yourself. Don't question yourself. Go on. It's like when you meet the log in the road, you stop and you go, is that really a log? 
Move it out of the way and keep going. I'm telling you, when the tribulation and the trouble comes and the opposition comes, your rights and wrongs get crossed sometimes. And you get to thinking, well, maybe I, maybe I, no, you didn't. Are you in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis? Okay. Did the Holy Spirit reveal to you that you did something wrong? Nope. So what's the problem? They're speaking evil. You go on. Stop getting your rights or wrongs crossed. But they said it about Christ. They said it about John the Baptist. They said it about Paul. And, uh, but in verse 8, it says that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And so they shouldn't be able to justly accuse uh, you of evil, although you'll have many accusations put against you. I'm telling you right now, if you do what God wants you to, accusations are coming. And there's accusations against you right now that you know nothing about. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> but just let them come. And you're going to feel like you did something wrong. You know what that is? It's just your conscience. <laughs> Keep your conscience purified by the book, purified by faith, purified by the Holy Spirit, and go on down the road. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so they shouldn't be able to justly accuse you of evil. And Peter represents that matter um, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4 real well. You're familiar about that. So he's got this thing here about sound speech. You say, what does sound speech do, do, do? What does sound speech do? Did I say that right? Thank you. Well, it tells the truth. Amen? It lines up with Scripture. Uh, sound speech, it avoids false accusation and reporting. Oh, I just got to tell you this. This is really on my heart. and I just want you to pray about it with me. And then they tell you a bunch of junk about somebody else. You're like, wait a minute. Stop it. Right? It avoids false reporting. Um, you say, so what do I do? If someone, so-and-so came to me about this and that, well, let it end with you. I don't care how juicy it is, man. Are you sure about it? Nope. Let it end with you. It avoids false accusations and reporting. It gives light on any subject it's discussing. Isn't that something? If you speak sound speech, you will give off light just by speaking. Man, that's, that should be our aim as Christians, to be able to have sound speech and just to whatever we say, it puts light on the subject and points people to Jesus Christ. Sound speech not only does that, but it edifies the saint. It will comfort the afflicted. It afflicts the comforted. And it exposes sin. He says there, sound speech, that he that is the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. Now, this world didn't think very much of Paul, did they? They didn't. They couldn't stand him. And they didn't think much of his speech. Look at 2 Corinthians 10. Just, you need to be reminded of this because every once in a while you get out on this little island or you'll spend a few days down at Juniper Junction or you'll go ahead and go down to the cave of Dulem and you won't have the 400 people with you. <laughs> and you get thinking you're the last of the Mohicans and you're not. Been there, done that. Probably too often. As the old preacher tells me, he's like, well, go ahead, go down to Juniper. Uh, go ahead and get fed, but don't stay. It's okay to go there, just you can't stay there. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Bible says, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now, ain't that the problem that people have with Christians? Christians have sound speech. I'm not talking about someone who's just a rude, sarcastic jerk either. But if you have sound speech, you know what they're going to say? 
You don't have any love. Uh, you're just negative all the time. Just visit a preacher friend of mine, and the trouble he's gone through is the same trouble I've gone through. Is people say, oh, you're just too negative. I'm like, man, I'm so positive. I make myself sick sometimes. <laughs> but they're going to come after you and go, and says, your speech is contemptible. You see, you know what they want to do? They want to put the preacher in handcuffs. They just want, oh, just throttle it back a little bit. You kidding me? Half the time I feel like a, what do you call it, a compromiser because I didn't throttle it up enough. Uh, one chapter over, 2 Corinthians eleven six, 6, Bible says, but though I be rude in speech. See, Paul knew it. Paul knew that the way his speech was perceived was rude. I don't believe a preacher ought to be intentionally rude, but every once in a while, good night, right? If preachers in Isaiah, what is it, chapter 51 or 56, I can't remember now, if they're a reference to dogs, every dog ought to have a bark and every dog ought to have a bite. Amen? <laughs> but he says, though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. And so the people that he went up against, they couldn't fight against Paul. And sound speech is needed in our churches, very much needed in our churches, uh, you, our little church here too. Verse 9, Titus chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, Exhort servants to be obedient under their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Now, when we preach through 1 Timothy, we cover this uh, in great detail. Uh, what we'll do is we'll just read this uh, couple of verses here. Go over First Timothy chapter 6. I'm not going to go through every little piece on this, having just covered it. First Timothy chapter 6. He says, exhort servants to be obedient under their own masters. This is not an employee-employer situation, all right? First of all, the words are different, They're completely different. This has to do with servants that are under the yoke and masters that literally own the servants for a certain period of time. That's what it is. And uh, you say, well, that's not appropriate in America. Too bad. It's the Bible. And uh, we might not do it here. We just do it under a different guise. You know what I mean? Uh, the more money you have, uh, the more people you'll sneak across the border. Anyways, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. See that, there's that thing again. And that they have believe, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Uh, not to be unbalanced on this, but when was the last time you heard a message preached on 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2? Now, we'll teach it, amen, we believe it, but when was the last time you heard just someone got up and preached? You say, well, it's probably not real necessary in America. Probably not, but it needs to be taught. It needs to be taught and exhorted. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words. What wholesome words? Verses 1 and 2. See that? Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such 
withdraw thyself. There's a lot in those first five verses, but Paul, back to Titus, he's telling Titus, look, you're going to have to exhort those that are servants. Exactly what he's saying. He's saying, challenge those servants through your preaching that they are to be obedient unto their own masters. Plain and simple. This isn't a reference again to employees and employers. It's a reference to masters and servants. It's not uh, right to sidestep sound doctrine just because a preacher's too weak to preach the truth. It needs to be taught. And Paul is saying, Titus, you get in that pulpit and you preach to those servants. And you preach that they're obedient, to be obedient under their own master's period. You don't revolt. You don't start a revolution. You don't start a coalition for the advancement of Cretan people. Amen? You, pre <laughs> you preach obedience to their own masters, and you let God deal with the thing. And Paul says over there in 1 Corinthians 4, if you're free, use it. If you're a servant, use it as God's free man. And that's some great teaching there, no doubt about it. But we'll put that to rest. Look at verse 10. Verse number 10. Titus chapter 2, verse 10. He says, not purloining. I thought for a while as a kid that might be a, like a cut of a steak, but I guess it's not. It's just a different word altogether. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Now that purloining is simply stealing. Stealing. And the idea, the uh, application or illustration, is that that servant is to be as faithful to his master as the wife, back in verse 4 and 5, was faithful to her husband. That's the illustration given there. And that the doctrine that deals with the gospel, the revelation of God and Jesus Christ, are adorned instead of shunned. Instead of shunned. Interesting passage of Scripture, great passage of Scripture there. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, applies this thing to the woman that obeys her husband. And of course, we've gone through it already, Romans chapter 2, to the Jew, 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6, to the servant. And here in Titus 2, verse 5, the servant also. Now, in Titus 2.10, you notice here in the passage that this thing is uh, dealing with servants. And the idea is, like we just said, the servant is to be faithful as a wife is to her husband. And that's the application you want to keep in mind when you get there. Now let's get this verse here, very familiar passage. Verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's a great passage dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that it's to all men. So the grace of God appears to all men. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 6, it's the first coming to put away sin. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, it's the first coming to put away sin. And then in verse 13, here, it's another future appearance, both to put away sin. So you need to remember, and I think you do, that grace in the Bible is not only for salvation. A lot of people think grace is just connected to salvation, but it's much more. Uh, sometimes it's connected to giving. Uh, sometimes it's connected to becoming poor. Sometimes grace is connected to supplying a strength. Sometimes grace is connected to a manner of life or a future blessing. But here in verse 11, it's dealing with salvation. Now look at verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So as you know, grace is a teacher. Grace is a teacher. 
And grace itself, being a good teacher, is going to teach you and I something through this passage. Uh, grace teaches you and I to deny ungodliness. You see that? Grace teaches you and I to deny worldly lust. Got a problem with worldly lust today? It Not necessarily because you're just such a wicked, good-for-nothing piece of trash. It's just you haven't been asking God for grace lately. Just need to win your prayers, go in your prayer closet, or wherever you're praying. Say you do your normal praying and say, Lord, uh, you know I struggle with this, so would you give me grace? Grace to recognize the need, grace to be able to handle it, and grace to overcome it. It's the great teacher of grace. Grace teaches you to deny ungodliness, worldly lust. And a lot of people, they may conquer the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. Very few people conquer the pride of life, amen. But grace teaches us to live righteously. It teaches us to live soberly. And it teaches us to live godly. Uh, not only that, continue on the passage, grace, it's grace. It's a, the great teacher of grace that teaches us to look for the second coming of Christ. You find yourself uh, not too interested in the Lord coming back, you need to ask for more grace. You don't need to go, what is, oh, what is wrong with me? I, I must be, I'm far from God and all that. No, you just need more grace is what you need. Amen. Ask the Lord for grace. <clears throat> and godly is the man who has God in his thoughts. Uh, look at uh, Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. I'll show you this thing here real quick. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. Talking about godly. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4, the Bible says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. You ever catch yourself running through life just not seeking the Lord? <laughs> I mean, not an altar call yet, man, but I'm telling you. You ever just find yourself slapped in the middle of a week somewhere and you're going about 100 miles an hour and getting this done and you're checking off things and ching, 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 and all of a sudden you're like, well, how you been, Lord? <laughs> that verse says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. And sometimes it seems like a, it seems like a hurricane of thoughts and God's nowhere around. It's like a Christian, you can, you can live your life like a practical atheist. Consumed with so much duty, consumed with so much serving, consumed with so much doing that you forget about the being. <clears throat> Godly man puts God into his actions. So if a man is godly, he'll consult God before he does anything in his life or react to any situation in his life. Last time you were faced with a real difficult situation, did you just, did you just talk to the Lord about it or did you just carry on the way you've been carrying on? Something we're thinking about this morning. So if a man is godly, he consults God before he does anything in his life. And that's done by studying the Word of God to find out what God said about the problem. And uh, I think we're going to stop right there. We're going to stop right there at verse number 12. Yep, we'll stop right there.